1815, the American sailing vessel, the Commerce, wrecked off the northeast coast of Africa. And after seven days in an open longboat, the crew found themselves stranded on the edge of the Sahara Desert. Then they were captured by Arab nomads. What followed was a harrowing story of slavery, starvation, survival, suffering, and ultimate redemption, which reminds me to turn off your cell phones if you would, please. <laughs> well, this is the subject of Dean King's riveting best-selling book, Skeletons on the Zahara, which received international acclaim. Some of you may have seen it. There was a two-hour documentary on the History Channel. An independent film, co film company in, Le in uh, London is uh, producing a feature film on it. And the nice thing about it is that Mr. King is a Richmonder. He's a native Virginian, grew up in Richmond. His father worked for A.H. Robbins. He went to St. Christopher's School. He uh, graduated from the University of North Carolina, received a master's degree in English from New York University. He's a gifted, accomplished, and prolific writer, uh, publishing in a number of uh, journals. And he is well known among those of you who are Patrick O'Brien fans as the author of a biography of Patrick O'Brien, a remarkable book. I'm also pleased to say that he saved our bacon last fall. As many of you know, Cokie Roberts was our speaker at the Wilkinson Lecture. The speakers at the Wilkinson Lecture give the lecture in the evening, then the next morning they spend uh, a good part of the, the morning with 20 high school students as part of our Blanton Scholars Program. Uh, sort of at the last minute, Ms. Roberts was not able to uh, be with the students, and we call on Dean King, a gifted author, who received rave reviews from our students about writing and writing history and how good history is good storytelling. So, Dean, I want to thank you in public for what you did, and I thank you for being with us today. And come share your fascinating story with us. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming Dean King. Dean? Thank you very much, Charlie. Well, it's, it's a real privilege to be here at the Virginia Historical Society, and um, they're so gracious that they make it sound like I did a great favor for them, but I was very honored to be here then and now. Uh, and I thank you for supporting uh, this organization. It's organizations like this. The more I do research uh, around the world, I'm writing a book about China right now and having done research in Africa and other places, the more I appreciate uh, what the resources we have here in America. And it's historical societies like this that are really on the front line in a lot of ways. And I, I wanted to give one example uh, of, of that before I show you this uh, brief documentary that I have. Um, I have um, here a new edition, which I've written an introduction to, uh, Captain Riley's memoir of this, uh, this epic journey that he took. And um, as writers of that time, uh, he wrote this in, in 1815, um, were all, often did. He, he didn't describe the looks of the people in his crew. He didn't uh, describe their personal traits and that sort of thing. And today's audience really needs that, I think. They, we're very visual now. We want to see the people. We want to know them. And so um, it was through the Connecticut Historical Society that I could go in and find the local militia records uh, from, from that period, from 18, the War of 1812, and discover how tall the sailors were and what color their eyes and their hair was, because that had been recorded when they signed up for the militia. So it's that kind of information that gives us a richness uh, to our history and allows uh, writers to, to work effectively today. So thank you for supporting this organization. What I'm going to do is this is a 12-minute documentary, 
the National Geographic Adventure magazine sent a photographer along, and I took two of my buddies who are videographers, amateur videographers. So uh, the, the footage isn't that great, but there are some gorgeous shots that this National Geographic uh, photographer took and very kindly let me put in this brief film, which I made when I came back from, from my trip to, to Africa to show my editors, and there had already been, uh, the movie rights had been optioned, so I sent it out to Hollywood to give them a look at how just uh, fantastically dramatic this landscape was and what the people were like and let them get a taste of the story. Um, the, the person narrating it is me, and mostly me in it. Um, you, you'll get the picture. It's, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. So it lasts 12 minutes, and then afterwards I'll come up and probably talk for another 20, 25 minutes, and then I'm happy to take questions on this book on writing and research or you know, anything about Patrick O'Brien that, that you might want to talk about. So I'm going to let this roll. When a ship wrecked, on the west coast of Africa during the Age of Sail, even brave captains were known to crack. One French captain tried to blow up the magazine of his ship. When stopped, he put two bullets in his throat. Another, broken by fear, lost his wits and became so defiant that he was murdered by his captors. Sailors believed that the coast was inhabited by cannibals. White slavery was a common practice in the region. I first discovered Riley's narrative on a library shelf. When I saw his sufferings in Africa, I pulled down a musty tome and began to read. The merchant brig Commerce wrecked on the west coast of the Sahara on August 28, 1815. After reaching the shore, the crew was attacked by Arab nomads, enslaved, and marched across the barren plains. Reaching across the ages, Riley's account of their sufferings and struggles moved me intensely. Of the crew of twelve, half perished on the desert. But five men led by Riley managed to cross the Sahara, traveling 800 miles to Essaouira, where they were ransomed. This was not a typical story of the day. I knew I had discovered a lost treasure. I became obsessed with retelling Riley's tale, so much so that I knew I had to retrace his footsteps on the Sahara. During the Middle Ages, Cape Bojador was the end of the navigable world. European ships could not get past the choppy shoals. When they finally did, they could not return. Disarmingly placid in fair weather, the Cape was a hellish wrecking ground when the seas were churned by storms, or when the searing desert wind clashed with the cold Atlantic and turned the sky into a dense blanket of fog. Riley's wooden brig, though crafted of the finest Connecticut timber, had long since washed away. But near where Riley said he had run aground, my crew and I discovered the rusted hulls of three modern wrecks. Walking across the sand-scoured dunes so far from home, faced with the lost dreams and prospects that these dead vessels represented, I felt my heart ache was my first visceral connection with Riley. After running aground in a storm and thick fog, Riley and his 11 men rowed and swam ashore. Shocked at their sudden misfortune, 
they were attacked by natives who stabbed and dragged off one of the men. Riley and his men took the ship's longboat and rowed out to sea, hoping to flag down a passing vessel. The surf crashed them down on a postage stamp-sized beach beneath 300-foot cliffs. With their skin burnt off by the sun and salt water, hungry and thirsty, Riley and his men crawled along these bluffs, suspended between the ocean and the continent, looking for a way to the top. I descended the same bluff on a fisherman's rope attached to a spike in the sand. Looking up from the water, I already knew what they soon found out. Above them was nothing but sand and rock. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink. When Riley and his men reached the top and stepped onto the Sahara, they fell down on their knees in grief, preparing themselves to die. There were, however, inhabitants on the coast. I was being led over the dunes by these very same people, resourceful nomads who once believed that shipwrecked western sailors and their goods and possessions were cast upon the shore as a gift to them from God. Riley and his men had been captured by the Ulid Buspa, a fierce warring tribe that roamed from well to well and from thornbush to thornbush, herding their camels. Clad in loincloths and little else, the sailor's flesh was chewed raw by the camel's bristles and churning spines. When the exhausted sailors dropped off the camels on purpose or fell, they had to run across the burning sand or stony desert to keep up, where they were mercilessly beaten. Having come to connect with Riley in every way still possible, I took off my shoes and ran across this brutal stone-pocked desert. In the Sagia El Hamra, the largest wadi in western Sahara, where it has not rained in three years, I encountered a victim of the desert a bull camel that could not make it up one last incline and that was now being stripped by the wind-borne sand and burnished by the sun, its hide thumped like a fiberglass canoe. More important than avoiding enemies on the desert is finding friends, among whom the custom of sharing is universally observed. Our guides taught us the mores of their people, who never seem to lose their sense of humor no matter how destitute. God provides for them even on the desert. And the only proper response to being passed the bowl of camel milk is, not thank you, Smilla, in the name of God. Allah, <laughs> Allah, 
أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حيا الصلاة حيا الفلاح I'd come to the Sahara to listen and to learn. It spoke to me in many ways. Sheltering from the noontime sun in a Busba home, the austerity of the region and its lavish hospitality enveloped me with melodic and spicy flourishes. When I showed the Busba chief a picture of my four daughters, he laid it on the floor and after a few moments slipped it furtively under his robes, never to be seen again. Why he could possibly have wanted to keep it, I could not imagine. Like Riley, I did not fully understand the Arabs' notions of ownership, but I was happy for him to have it, just as I am sure he indulged my own foibles. But it was out on the desert that I was perhaps most able to complete the triangle of connections between Riley, the Sahrawis, and myself. As my crew and I covered a hundred miles on camelback from Tarfaya to Gulamim, in the southernmost reaches of Morocco, I came to understand the Arab's central possession. There is but one source of wealth on the desert, the camel. The Arabs have a saying, only those who ride camels understand camels. One might take it a step further. Only those who understand camels understand the desert. rounded the mountainous dunes that Riley rounded and crossed the endless plains and salt basins that he crossed, I experienced the paradox of the camelier, the bitter ride and the sweet feeling of flying effortlessly across the world's harshest terrain. I became attached to my camel. Its obstinate spirit was the spirit of the land, as necessary as water on the desert and more plentiful by far. Only a rider of camels understands camels. Riley understood this. He inadvertently became the first ethnographer of Western Sahara, and in his willingness to understand a new and alien culture, he brought back something even more precious to America. As a white man, he was able to give a voice to the victims of slavery, a voice that African Americans did not have. And Riley was wise enough to understand that it was not that Arabs were bad men, but that slavery was an evil institution. The desert is a place of transformation. In the face of its desolation, Riley had contemplated suicide. He had surrendered to the will of God and opened his mind to cooperation and friendship with a people he did not understand. While five of his shipmates were lost to the desert, Riley returned home with a story that helped change his nation. So I was, uh, I was in the New York Yacht Club library uh, researching one of my Patrick O'Brien companion books when one day I looked up on the shelf and I saw on the spine of a book the words Sufferings in Africa. And I plucked that down and cracked it open, started reading. And I'd re- read a lot of sailor memoirs at that time doing research for my O'Brien books. And I soon realized that here was a guy 
um, telling a story with a, a level of detail and analysis that far surpassed uh, the other memoirs that I had been reading. And I became very intrigued. It was this really amazing story of these sailors being shipwrecked and enslaved on the desert. And I stopped my research for a day and a half and did nothing but read this memoir. Couldn't put it down. I was amazed uh, that, of the story of Americans being enslaved. It, uh, it, it shocked me in a way. And I knew that, uh, that, that it would make a fascinating tale because I didn't think anybody uh, knew the story any longer. So I went down to uh, a few blocks south of the New York Yacht Club to the New York Public Library, and Riley had listed the sailors who were in the crew in the front of the book, and I went through the, the card catalog there looking uh, their names up, and I discovered that one of the other sailors had also written a, a memoir about the same incident, Archibald Robbins, who's another character in the story. And so I then had his memoir, and I read the two memoirs and, and compared them. I also discovered that Abraham Lincoln had read Captain Riley's memoir when he was a boy. And in his 1860 campaign biography, he had said that it was one of six books that had made a, a major impact on him. And the others were the Bible, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Aesop's Fables, and biographies of Washington and Jefferson. Lo and behold, there was this uh, Riley's memoir uh, listed with those books. And I knew that it had then made an impact uh, on American history because it was about the brutality of slavery. And so I, I thought, wow, um, this is an amazing story, particularly for today when we're having these uh, clashes between the East and West because the real magic of the story is in the relationship between the captain and the, the Arab who buys him to take him across the desert to, to ransom him and what happens along the way. And so um, I, I had all these written resources, and I, I, I realized that what I really needed to do was that I couldn't take uh, what Riley had said in his memoir to be the, the exact truth. I couldn't take what Robbins had said. I needed to compare those, uh, those texts, but then I needed to go over to Africa and retrace their route. And at the time that they were shipwrecked there, there were no maps of the region. If you look on an 1815 map of the world and look there, you'll see a big blank area and something like wild Arabs written there. Uh, and, and the sailors thought they were cannibals living there. And so what uh, Riley and Robbins did was they endured this experience, and they mentally uh, captured it. And when they got back, they took existing maps and basically just drew out their roots and put on wells and hills and, and everything they could remember uh, and guessed at where, where they had been. So I took both of their uh, maps, and I superimposed those on a modern map to try to figure out where they had been and took that information and planned my trip. Well, it just so happened that uh, I planned my trip a year before 9-11 for the week after 9-11. And when that happened, of course, the, the world was set on end. Uh, some of the people that I was going to go with couldn't go. And, in fact, I called up the outfitter who was helping me uh, plan this whole trip. And I said, I was getting ready to tell him, hey, let's postpone this till the spring. And he said, no, no, the camels are on the way. You got, you've got to go. And the place I was going was so remote that I had to truck in my own camels. And uh, I should have known that was a bad sign. Um, but I, I got in an airplane anyway, and I flew to Morocco and, and landed in uh, Casablanca on the day that the United States began bombing Afghanistan. And then got on another plane and uh, flew down to Western Sahara, 
which was formerly Spanish Sahara until 1974 when the Spaniards basically threw up their hands and, and left because it was a lawless land. There really wasn't enough there to make it worth their while. And when they did that, the Mauritanians invaded from the south, the Moroccans invaded from the north, and the Algerians came in and supported an indigenous movement there. The longest-standing U.N. refugee camps in the world are on the Mauritanian-Western Sahara border now. And uh, there's supposed to be a U.N.-sponsored referendum to determine who controls this country. But uh, the Moroccans in 1975 marched 300,000 people into Western Sahara in the Green March and, and, and changed the population. So there's no way to hold a referendum. So it's in sort of a permanent stalemate right now. What that meant for me was that I had planned this expedition. I had gone through the National Tourism Board, told them what I was going to do, had my plans approved. But when I got down there, I found out that it was the Moroccan military and the national police who controlled the place, and, and they really didn't care what I had done in advance. They didn't want me there. They were scared that of having an American there in a place that is unsettled. There still is... Uh, uh, sort of a seething feeling among the local population. There hasn't been any violence in a while, but they were very nervous. So for the first week that I was there, I, I spent it trying to talk my way onto the desert. And finally, I, I threw up my hands and went to a place a little north of the old Moroccan-Western Sahara uh, border, still on the Sahara, and it was my first day on, on the camels. At that point, I was, I was a little distraught that um, I had all this time and effort and expense was uh, going to go for naught. But the very first day on the camels uh, changed everything. Now, I've never ridden a camel before, and I had planned to go uh, several hundred miles on one, which was somewhat foolish. But uh, on the very first day, uh, we're, we're on that, that beach uh, that you saw us coming around that hill. There's a beach on the other side. And Mohammed El Arab, the guy you saw with a club in his hand, with his elbows out, looking like Rashid Wallace going for a rebound. Now, here's a guy who's born on the desert. His father was a mercenary, had seven wives. He grew up on the desert. He learned to ride uh, a camel the way we would learn to ride a bike. And so he gets on his camel, and, and he, he hits it, and he goes taking off, you know, tearing off down the desert. And my camel follows his camel, and we're flying down the desert. And I've never been on a camel before. It's just terrifying get up, getting up on the thing, and you're seven feet up. And uh, pretty soon, well, my metaphor for riding on a camel is it's like sitting on a bar stool on a horse. And when the horse goes one way, the bar stool's going the other, and you're going back and forth. And... I'm dodging rafts of foam flying out of the camel's mouth, trying to stay away from that. And then all of a sudden, I, I feel myself slipping to the side, and I don't know what's going on. And then I'm looking down at these whip-sawing legs, and I realize, well, they haven't cinched my saddle on tightly enough. And I'm going over. I don't know how to stop a camel at this point. And so uh, I have no choice but either to go in those legs or bail out. And so finally, I let go of the reins, and I, I bailed out, and I hit the sand hard. And I'm lying there, and uh, Muhammad, who's about a quarter mile ahead of me at this point, realizes I'm not behind him anymore, and he comes galloping up, and he's, he says, King, what's wrong with you? And I'm feeling my head and my ribs to see if I've broken anything. And before I can answer, he goes, Never mind, it doesn't matter. Camels are sacred beasts, and those who fall from camels are blessed by God. You're not hurt. Get up. Let's go. <laughs> and... Uh, of course, uh, that notion was of small solace to a Westerner who doesn't necessarily believe in it. But inside, I had a, a, a big grin because Captain Riley, uh, in 1815, had written almost the exact same scene in his memoir. He'd said he'd fallen off of his camel. His guide came up to him and said, Captain Riley, if you'd fallen from a donkey, you'd be dead. But you fell from a camel. You're fine. They're, they're sacred, and you're, you're not hurt. 
And when, when Riley wrote that in the memoir and I read that, I thought, okay, he's, he's a sailor and so, a bit of a fisherman, uh, you know, and so he's, he's allowed to tell a few tall, tall tales, and I didn't necessarily believe that. But for that to happen to me in 2001 uh, like that uh, was really eye-opening. And it turned out that, you know, I'd gone over there. I wanted to get this empirical data. I'd, I'd taken these maps, and I was going to go find the wells and the dry riverbeds and the, and the landmarks that they said that they had been to to try to confirm the story. Um, well, that wasn't going to happen quite the way I'd planned it. But, but all of a sudden, the stuff that I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to, you know, experience something like that, all of a sudden that became uh, more part of my journey than I ever imagined could happen. Uh, this guy, Muhammad El Arab, uh, was a natural-born teacher. And when we were passing the, the, the bowl of camel milk or the tea, you know, whenever you stop, that's all, that's all they have. They have so little. Whenever you stop to take a break, they fix tea, and you have three rounds of tea. And if I would take the cup of tea from him uh, and say thank you, he wouldn't let go. I had to say bismillah in the name of God. And, you know, it's really a wonderful concept there on the desert that uh, everything, uh, all your resources are given to you by God. And anybody who shows up in your camp, uh, you're going to feed and share. And they don't say thank you. They're not beholden to you or anything. It's, it's a gift from God. And it's really one of the, um, one of the uh, uh, ideas that has allowed them to, to exist there. But so Muhammad taught me that. And when we would cross paths on our camels, he knew that I was there looking for the Ulad Buspa tribe because the Ulad Buspa had saved uh, Captain Riley. It was the, the, the guy who, who bought him was, was of that tribe. And Muhammad was from the Regiba tribe. Earlier in the century, they, they fight a lot there on the desert. And uh, Muhammad's tribe, the Regiba, had driven the Ulad Buspa out. We did go find some Ulad Buspa. Uh, I was in a, that house that those people were Ulad Buspa. But um, as we were crossing our paths on the desert, Muhammad g- would go, um, Chef de Ulad Buspa, talking to me, and he'd be chief of the Regibai. He'd go, um, are, there, are there enemy ahead? Is there salt? Is there sugar? And he would reenact these sort of age-old meetings on the desert so that I could experience that. And each night we would sit out um, under a, one of those Berber tents, you know, kind of a, 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 po- a post with rugs draped over it, and we'd have a, a, a lantern going, and we would get the map out, and we would look at it. And before I'd set out, uh, if, if you read the book, you'll see there's kind of a crucial scene where um, they smoke some stuff to ward off evil eye. And I told Muhammad before we went out, I said, you know, I really want to get some of that stuff you smoke to, to ward off evil eye. They call it manaji. And he said, okay, well, give me five bucks, the equivalent of. And I gave him the money. He ran into a kiosk, and he came back with a sheep shin bone pipe and a bag of brown stuff that he said was manaji. And he would smoke that stuff every night and get very loquacious. And we would sit there in, under that tent. And even though, you know, I speak some French and, and, and some English, uh, and he speaks nothing but Spanish and, and Arabic, uh, we would have conversations. And it would get louder and louder as we repeated things and picked up on each other's language and communicated. And there again, it was another great lesson in, uh, because Captain Riley, when he was over there, he had to communicate with his Arab captor. He had to negotiate with them. And so for me, instead of um, you know, academically trying to, to figure that out, I was able to, to live it. Now, all my friends who were with me would scurry because we would be yelling at each other, saying the same thing over and over. It got very aggravating. But, but for me, it was a, a great lesson. And he was pointing to places on the map where they didn't let me go because Western Sahara is much more landmined than they wanted to let me um, in on before I got there. Uh, they, they, they had landmined the entire border, and I knew that, but actually a lot of the interior roads were landmined. And as we were crossing over that old border, there were some camels uh, that had been blown up a few days before. 
So um, it, it's a tough place. But he would look in there and so go, yes, they, they would have gone there because that's an Ulad Buspa well. This place is so dry. Um, it hadn't rained in six years in some places. And so if you look even on a contemporary modern map, you will see that a lot of the wells are marked throughout this land. Um, but there, there's no, there are no rivers, no um, surface water there at all, except for in these wadis where the ocean backs into them and, and sand has blocked the water in it. It's turned a bright lime green. And so um, I was learning very much uh, from Muhammad, but most of all I was learning about camels. And camels are really pretty amazing beasts. Uh, if you, if you want to go forward, uh, they want to stop. If you want to go to the left, they want to go to the right. And they're kind of an acquired taste. But they're, they're amazing beasts. They've got um, very hairy ears to keep uh, the sand out in a, in a sandstorm. They've got eyelids that shut down. They can see through them and keep walking in a sandstorm. Their brains are insulated so that their bodies can absorb heat all day, and it doesn't uh, affect their brain. They don't have to sweat or pant like humans, mammals have to do to stay cool. They, um, they can let their bodies heat up, and at night when it's cool, they release that heat. And that's why they can go for weeks on end without uh, drinking. And they can eat that scrub brush you saw there and turn it into nutrition-rich milk. And so um, they're really uniquely fit for being on the desert. The Arabs measure their wealth in camels. The camels are their transportation. The the camels produce food. And so uh, as you stay on the desert, you begin to appreciate um, the the, the beast in in all its forms. Um, One thing I learned in a very graphic way was that you should never, ever underestimate the intelligence of your camel. And one day we'd had a a long, hot day uh, of traveling and uh, one of my friends, one of the videographers, uh, had gotten down off his camel, and he knew that at the end of the trip I had planned to have a camel feast because there's another, another pivotal scene in the book where uh, they slaughter a camel, and uh, they're getting ready to travel the 800 miles across a desert, and they slaughter it, and all of a sudden as they're cooking it, Arabs come pouring into the campsite out of, out of nowhere. And they uh, gobble down the, the camel, and Captain Riley's distraught because he knows he and his men are going to need this food for their strength to make it across the desert. And the people who have control of him won't stop the other uh, Arabs who've come in from eating it. And so uh, he's very upset. And if you, read, uh, if you read Lawrence or Thesiger or any of the uh, desert explorers, you often usually will see a scene like that where they've gathered all the provisions they need to, to, for, for crossing the desert, and, um, and they're... Uh, they, they sit down to have their first meal, and their people come pouring in, and their guides won't stop them from eating the food. And so the, the explorer becomes very upset because he knows he needs all his resources to get across a desert. These people who he thought he was going to trust to help him make that crossing are now no longer um, – he, he's not sure he can trust them anymore. And so it's something that Westerners experience, but it is this whole concept of, of bismillah in the name of God. If you have food, you feed your neighbor on the desert. And you know, it is part of their uh, deeply held beliefs, and you really can't violate that. And so um, my friend knew that I, w- I wanted to experience this. I wanted to have a, a camel feast. And it was such a, a tough time to be there after 9-11 that I ended up having a goat feast with just my crew because I didn't want to invite a lot of um, unknown people into the campsite to celebrate with us. But uh, my friend got down off of his camel, and you saw, saw this camel. The tall, slender, um, blonde ones were nice riding camels, but there were some very large Moroccan pack camels that we also had to ride, and they were miserable. It was like riding on a jackhammer. And uh, my friend had had one of the jackhammer camels that day, and he got down off the, off the camel, and he got up in its face, and he took it by the ears, and he said, 
you blankety-blank camel, when we're through, I'm going to eat you. And the camel looked at him for a second, and its head started to quiver, and it went, bah, and shot cud all over my friend. And it's, it's true. Um, it knew what he was saying. And... Um, the guide, we were all howling, of course, and the guide went and got a, a big uh, jug of water that we had and dumped it on my friend's head. And he came up smiling and laughing. He's got a good sense of humor. And he had cuds stuck in his teeth. He'd gotten hit so, so point blank. But, um, so never, ever underestimate the intelligence of your camel. They're smart. Well, Muhammad was not just our, our camel. He was a camel, actual camel jockey instructor from Marrakesh. And so he did teach us to ride, and he, he was so loquacious and, and great that he was, in a lot of ways, a uh, uh, saving grace of the journey. But uh, he wasn't just that. He was also our local guide. And when you're traveling on the desert, you know, maps are, aren't accurate. Uh, there, are no, there are no buildings. People move. So you have to have a local guide. And uh, one day he led us astray a little bit, and he came to me and he said, King, you like me, right? I said, oh, yeah, Muhammad, you're, you're great. Uh, I need you here. I'm learning so much. And he said, well, you better tell the head man because he's going to fire me. So uh, I went to the head man. I said, look, you cannot fire Muhammad. Of everything that's gone wrong, and I, believe me, a lot went wrong on this journey, um, I need him here. Well, I got up the next morning, and Muhammad was gone. They had taken him into town, uh, dropped him off in town, and they were looking for another um, local guide. Well, they told him we were going to be on camels, and nobody wanted to be the local guide. And so basically, finally, they, uh, they found a guy, and they didn't tell him he was going to be on camels. And he came out, he had long wool pants on and wingtip shoes. And when he saw the camels, he balked. He wouldn't get on them. He made them strap a Land Rover seat on top of one of the camels before he would get on the camel. And uh, this guy, unlike Muhammad, wouldn't speak at all. His name was uh, Faraji, and he was, he was silent. And, and so now I was going to be thrust out on the desert with... Um, uh, Ali, the guy with the very gaunt face that you saw at the beginning of the film, who was our camel wrangler, and this guy, Faraji, and uh, none of us you know, spoke each other's language. It was going to be kind of a curious situation here. While the, the rest of our crew went ahead in Land Rovers, as a Land Rover-assisted trip to set up the camp, and we would ride our camels 30 miles or so to get there. Now, uh, I originally planned to go 50 and 100-mile days the way Riley said he had done. And here in Richmond, I, that summer, I trained, I ran and ran so that I could ride get off the camel, run some, get, get back on, and do everything I could to try to experience what it would be like to do that. Well, I, I soon discovered that um, times have changed. You know, the, the camels couldn't do that. The, these these uh, Arabs who are on camels all the time couldn't do it either. The very first day, we went about 35 miles, and Muhammad got down off his camel, and he had a leg cramp, and he went down, and I had to give him Advil to, to revive him. So... Um, uh, I had been, but I, I, I had been pushing, you know, I'd planned this, I'd already written a whole draft of this book, and this was my big deal, you know, I was going over there to check things out, and I knew what I wanted, and um, so I was very driven, and uh, so driven that I almost drove everybody mad. Uh, one day, Ali challenged me to a foot race, because I was pushing them so hard, and so we go, tear, both barefooted, we go tearing off across that desert, and, and I've trained, I'm in good shape, so I go tearing out in front of them, and pretty soon I realized, you know, it doesn't really do you much good to be able to beat your own guide at a foot race on the desert. Uh, but there had been a fair amount of tension between um, Ollie and me. And we're out there alone now. And it's, it's been another uh, long, tough day. 
And we've gotten lost on this day. Now, we're on West, Western Sahara. There's a cell phone line that goes down the single highway there. And so we were able to keep in cell phone touch with the camp generally up ahead. But this day we'd gotten into, uh, you know, a depression and hadn't been able to keep in touch with them. So we didn't know where they were. They didn't know where we were. And at the end of the day, dusk is coming on. We're lost. We go out to the coast. We figure, you know, that, that at least will tell us where we are. We go out there, and uh, we get there, and there are about 30 men with their turbans on, sitting, listening to the war on the radio, praying to the east. It's dusk. Very harrowing scene. Dark clouds are coming in off that 200-foot bluff. And um, we decide that we're not going to sit there long. We sort of cruise through these guys, say hello, hit the coast, start heading north, figuring we'll find that camp sooner or later. Pretty soon we see headlights. They've sent the Land Rovers down to pick, up, pick us up. And the other guys, everybody with me, the photographer and these people I, I brought along to help with the research, got in the Land Rovers, and I decided I'm going to stay out with Ali and Faraji because uh, this is why I'm here. You know, we'll ride into the night. We had another 10 miles to go, and we'll get there late. We'll camp out for a little bit, and we'll get up and, and ride again, and that will give me a, a taste of what Riley experienced. Well, about 40 minutes after they leave, we see a shack on the edge of the cliff. And Faraji finally speaks up. He goes, I know who lives there, to Ollie. I don't know what he said, but Ollie sort of communicated that to me. And I try to tell him, look, I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. You know, this is part, part of my research. But Ollie says, you know, he wanted to stop too, and it had been a long, hot day. And so I gave in. I said, okay, we can stop there. So we go into this little shack. It's got windows with no glass in them, and it's got a lantern with a glowing hot sock there that if any robe touches it, the whole place is going to go up in flames. And this guy fishes over the edge of that cliff, brings up fish, throws them in a box, puts salt on them, and once a week somebody comes down there and picks up his fish and takes them to the market. And uh, like any place on the desert, this guy, he's got some onions and tomatoes, and he pulls that out, pours in olive oil, and has a little bit of bread. He serves us everything he has. You know, this is hospitality. And, um, and so after he's done what he needs to do to, to be the hospitable host, uh, I can then see that he's really happy to have me there for some reason. I'm not quite sure what it is. He pulls out a box, and he hands it to me, and I look at it, and uh, it, it's got Marlboro written on it, you know, Marlboro cigarettes. And, and I start looking at it, and it turns out that his cousin, who lives in the United States, had bought a, a fishing kit uh, with Marlboro bonus points. And uh, it was actually, he was excited to have me there because the directions were in English, and he couldn't figure out how to use the thing. And so I, I read the directions, and it turns out that it was a, uh, a spinning reel fly fishing conversion kit. And what he was really excited about was that thick uh, line that he thought would help him fish over that edge. And I had to break the news to him that, it, that it, you know, it wasn't going to do him much good because it wasn't going to reach 200 feet down to the ocean. And, and destroy his sort of illusions of, of what America was going to do for him after he had uh, been so kind to me. Um, so we head out, out of that shack that night. Uh, it's kind of an amazing scene. You know, on the edge of the cliff, the waves are crashing below. There's stars above. Um, uh, an amazing, you know, uh, thing to experience. And I think we're going to ride on to the camp. And about another 40 minutes up the, the coast, they say, hey, we want to stop. We're tired. And again, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to keep going. But at this point, I was sort of resigned to it. I said, okay, well, if you, if you want to, we will. And we stopped there. Uh, they pulled out the wooden bowl, made us food. We ate the way they do on the desert with their hands. And for the first time, we started uh, sort of getting through some, some taboos. When you read uh, Skeleton's or, or Riley's memoir, you'll see that any time they wouldn't eat out of the same 
vessel or drink out of the same vessel as Riley because um, he was an infidel. And here on this trip, they had been serving us, my crew, and not eating with us. And so this was kind of a nice moment, I thought. We were all eating together, um, bonding a little bit. And early that morning, before dawn, we got up, and Allie and I rode up with the camels on the coast. And he finally started talking to me. He hadn't talked the whole trip, mainly because Muhammad had been so loud the whole time. But he started talking to me, telling me that, you know, he had eight children and that any given night uh, he lives on the desert, he would just take his blanket and walk out on the desert. He sleeps on the desert all the time. And he actually, because he does uh, guided trips over there, he speaks some Italian, some French, some Spanish, some Japanese. Pretty amazing guy. And it occurred to me, it was was kind of a, a great breakthrough moment for me, that, um, you know, I, I'd planned uh, this, this route very carefully back here in Richmond. And it finally dawned on me that, you know, what I'd planned here wasn't going to happen uh, there the same way. And they have, they have a, a – uh, it's a very common in the, in the Peace Corps. They call that Wawa, West Africa wins again. Uh, nothing ever goes as you <laughs> planned it. But it was also a moment of connection for me because when Riley got there, you know, after he shipwrecked, went out in the boat, came back to the coast, climbed up, took him three days to get up there. They're starving, dying. They see the fire. They go to the fire, and they get attacked by these Arabs. And the Arabs come flying out there, spears, you know, in the air, scimitars waving. They have a big battle. Well, they're not fighting the, the Americans. That's the foregone conclusion. These guys are slaves. They're fighting each other over who's going to possess them. And so they take them, they strip off their clothes because their clothes are valuable. These men are drinking water out of the camel troughs. And the water, they're so dehydrated and in and, and such bad shape that the water's going right through their system. They have nothing, no possessions, no clothes. They're reduced about as much as men can be reduced. But that entire time, as, as long as they were a crew, they were a ship's crew that whole time, they worked together, they knew their roles, they supported each other. But now they were divided up among these families in this tribe, and these tribes, they travel sort of, uh, they space themselves because they have to feed their camels on these little patches of scrub. And so now they were separated. And when Riley got up onto the desert, all of a sudden he had a crisis. You know, here everything had gone wrong, and now he didn't have his support, and and, um, he decided uh, that he couldn't take it any longer. And And he tells you in his memoir, he looked for a stone to bash his own brains in with. And uh, he didn't find that stone. And he tells you, um, at that moment, I knew that I needed to surrender to the will of God. He could no longer, he's a very powerful man and a great leader in many ways. Not a great sailor, mind you, but a pretty good leader. And, um, and so he was willing his men to safety. He was trying to keep them alive. And finally, at this moment, he realizes, you know, I have to become a better shepherd. I have to see what's going on. I have to respond. And so for me, in a, in a less profound way, because it wasn't life or death, but, but it was a moment where I realized, you know, I had to now respond to my environment. I had to relent. You know, they weren't going to do 50, 100-mile days, but I was learning so much else. that. Um, and, and finally, you know, even my own friends were getting pretty, you know, I think probably pretty perturbed uh, at, at how hard I was pushing everything. So it was a gr- that was another great, great moment for me. Um, uh, the subject of 9-11 did come up uh, among the crew, and... Our crew seriously thought that it was a CIA plot to discredit Islam. And uh, I realized that, you know, we weren't going to um, bridge that gulf in our understanding of that event. And we never talked about it again. I didn't think it was probably a very healthy conversation to have out there in the middle of the desert um, uh, at that time. Uh, but as we traveled, you know, as we got up each morning, and we're sore from riding those camels. I had, a, I had a hole in my backside like that after the first day. It was so bad. 
And um, they didn't want to get on the camels. We didn't want to get on the camels, but we had a mission. And uh, we found ways to have humor, to talk and laugh together. And, you know, as we did that, we became friends. We bridged that gulf uh, through our interactions. And I still have on the, uh, the friendship ring that Muhammad gave me when I left. You know, I consider him a friend. So that was a, another real eye-opener for, you know, uh, it made me realize that when, when we have these religious and cultural differences, that they're really tough to, to, to bridge from an intellectual standpoint. But, but when you get to know the people and understand uh, that they're, they're a lot like you and respond to the same things and that you, you work together, that's, that's a way to, to bridge those uh, kinds of gulfs. Um, one, one last story I think I'll, I'll end on here. Um, this was uh, right before Muhammad left. It had been, uh, as you might imagine, a hot, dusty day. And we got to a well at about noon, and there were big crows sitting on top and some wild donkeys that congregated this well. And uh, we ride up, and sort of the dung dust is flying. It's, a, it's a kind of a, uh, a tough place. And the donkeys go scurrying off. The crows fly far enough, just far enough so that we can't get them. And it's like they're watching us, waiting to, you know, to choosing which one of us to go for when we keel over. And uh, we water our camels, and we're sitting there. It's, it's noon. We have our lunch, and we're waiting for it to cool down before we head out again. And um, one of the camels snorts a thing out that, that uh, Muhammad looks at it and goes, doodah. That's a doodah. And it's a white thing. It kind of looks like, like a pearl onion with legs. And uh, I guess adult doodahs crawl away to do whatever adult doodahs do. I don't know what that is. But uh, they're little parasites that go in the camel's nose, and when they get big enough, they get snorted out. And so as we're sitting there with not much to do, I, 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 the, the song, you know, Camp Town Ladies Sing This Song starts going through my mind. So I start singing, Camp Town Ladies Sing This Song, doodah, doodah. And you can tell I can't sing. Uh, but Muhammad thought that was pretty funny. And, he, you know, he doesn't know any English, but he starts singing Camp Town Ladies Sing the Song with me. And pretty soon we're just, you know, howling away. Everybody else is scurried away again. It's the two of us, you know, singing at the top of our lungs. Another kind of neat moment. I realized that the, the part that was nonsense to me, doodah, meant something to him. And the, and the part that meant something to me was total nonsense to him. But here we were united in this great moment of humor that I'll never forget, you know, that we've, we've again, found a way to, to come together in, in these kind of circumstances. So, um, really, the, the, this research mission, on top of all the, the um, research that I did in, in places like this, uh, which was a lot of fun, too, this really sort of uh, brought it all together and, and allowed me to bring the personal touch and the understanding to his narrative. Um, I was also able to bring a lot of the perspective, modern-day perspective. He didn't know that they were the Ulid Buspa. He didn't know that they, you know, a, a lot of, of what he was saying. He thought that he saw people that were 300 years old because they were so old and wrinkled, and he, he misunderstood what they said. And um, so I, I was able to bring modern context to it. At the same time, by going over there, I was uh, enlightened by what I saw. Another instance of that is uh, what the, you'll, you'll see in the book. They, they heat up knives in the fire for almost any illness. Um, in this case, I think it was moon sickness. They heat up knives in the fire, and they basically brand the sick person at the uh, wrists and ankles and neck. And it's awful, you know, it's, it, particularly if you don't believe in it. You know, one of the sailors gets sick, and they treat him this way, and he's screaming, and Riley's going nuts because he wants to help a sailor, but, but they insist on treating him this way. Well, again, I thought, when I read that, I thought, boy, you know, that sounds a little far-fetched. Maybe he's pulling my leg. Well, it turns out I'm, I'm sitting with one of my drivers one day, and he's got scars on his neck. His name's Ahmed, and I said, Ahmed, you know, how did you get those scars? And he went on to tell me that about four years ago he had been ill, 
and uh, described the exact same treatment. They had heated up the, the knives in the fire and branded him. And he's got children. And I asked him if, if his children were sick, if, if he would treat them that way. And he said, oh, yes, of course. So one of the, the real discoveries was, for me was that not much has changed in two centuries. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. Okay, great. We've got about five minutes. Yeah.